What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, coming back at you with another edition of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Okay, welcome to the show ladies and gents. If you missed last week's show, don't worry, you can still catch it on demand. Head over to lordsofpain.net or blogtalkradio.com, look for Lords of Pain Radio and download Sports Entertainment is Dead. Last week was a two-hour special looking at my choices for matches of the year in WWE, and before that it was a two-hour debate with the Doc about sports entertainment versus performance art. The same could be said for all the great shows here at Lords of Pain Radio. Please don't hesitate to download any and all of them. Lots of great content coming to you from lordsofpain.net. It is January, and that means that it is Royal Rumble season, my favourite time of the year. The Royal Rumble has been a huge part of my fandom from since before I can even remember. The 1991 Royal Rumble is one of my earliest memories of watching wrestling on videotape in a friend's bedroom. 1998 was the Royal Rumble that first brought me into watching wrestling every week as I discovered Sky TV covered it here in the UK. 2005, which saw Batista win, drove me away from the product for a two-year hiatus as I felt disenfranchised with the direction of the company and its new stars, and the 2007 Royal Rumble with the victory of The Undertaker was the news I was waiting for to bring me back. I've been watching weekly ever since. The Royal Rumble has had an indispensable part of my fandom of WWE, and it always shall. It's hard to believe any event will ever come close to eclipsing it for me, or indeed any match type. One of the great advantages of watching professional wrestling as performance art is shifting our understanding of match types from just stipulation matches, like a battle royal, to understanding it instead as genre, a genre of wrestling. And Royal Rumble is essentially a genre unto itself, in terms of the tropes that are common among Royal Rumble matches. Those who follow my podcast, follow my columns, have talked me away from it all, will perhaps know that I am almost as big a fan of cinema as I am of wrestling. And my performance art ideas have been heavily influenced by that love for cinema. And one of the reasons why being that one of the fascinating things about examining film is understanding the different tropes of genres and why it is certain films are classed as the genres they're classed in. One of my inspirations as a writer and a podcaster is Mark Kermode, one of the UK's foremost cinema critics. And it was his TV show recently on BBC4 called Secrets of Cinema that broke down six, ultimately seven, of cinema's enduring genres, as he says, uh, and looked at the tropes of them that inspired my decision to this week sit back and examine the same tropes that define the Royal Rumble match as a genre. Examining genre tropes isn't necessarily a directly applicable science lifted from cinema criticism, because ultimately professional wrestling is an entirely different medium of entertainment and art, but we can take inspiration from it, and that's exactly what I've done this week. Doing it also strengthens our understanding of why fans react to specific versions of specific genre matches the way they do, because we better understand what it is fans expect from specific genres of match by looking at the common elements often found among versions of that match. 
What I'm saying, if you're not quite understanding it, will become clearer as we go through the rest of the show, as I begin to break down the tropes that I believe come to identify most frequently examples of good Royal Rumble matches. It also allows us to better understand the way specific genre matches, in this case the Royal Rumble, have evolved, have grown over the years from their gestation period into what we know them today in this strangely almost postmodern age of professional wrestling. So over the next hour, I'm going to be looking at five of the most inherent tropes I believe are important to a Royal Rumble match. To a Royal Rumble match's identity, and not just its quality, because both are sometimes as important as each other to understand as a wrestling fan. Best of all, by coming to an understanding of of wrestling matches as genre in this way, what we're able to then do is better appreciate daring alternative takes on that genre. Instead of writing off a slower-paced cerebral ladder match, for example, as being dull or boring because it doesn't meet our expectations because of our familiarity with the tropes that define the ladder match as a genre, what we're able to do is appreciate the daring subversions that might be put forward by more imaginative professional wrestlers who, as I said in the very first episode of Sports Entertainment, have to often be as much artists as they are athletes. So hopefully, by the end of this show, as I've broken down these five inherent tropes to a Royal Rumble match, it may be that maybe you think about Royal Rumble matches you've previously disliked a little bit differently, and I would encourage you to go and revisit those Royal Rumble matches with a lot of what we discuss on the show in mind. I am here on my own this week, so we're going to rattle through this. Hopefully it will be about an hour long, but as always, if I go a little short or a little long, I hope you don't mind too much, and I hope you'll stick with me. With that in mind then, let's ask what are the genre tropes of a Royal Rumble match? What defines a Royal Rumble match? Because it's sometimes not quite as simple as just saying, well, if it's if it's a Royal Rumble match, it's a Royal Rumble match. That's why I said lifting this from cinema critique isn't necessarily a directly applicable science because, of course, there's much less room for interpretation. The Royal Rumble match is a very concrete idea presented at a very concrete time of year at a very concrete event. Nonetheless, we can still start to pick apart the way that this match has evolved over the years to try and understand what are the most common practices found, often within its, more often than not, 60-minute runtime. And perhaps the most prescient of those, the most prominent of those, I should say, is the Iron Man. Rumbles are full of incredible feats of endurance, and its unique format, being a 60-minute battle royal with timed intervals between each entrant, facilitates a demonstration of cardio discipline like perhaps no other version of a wrestling match can. Matches that are as expansive as Royal Rumbles in terms of both their manpower, operating often with fields of 30. We've seen them done, of course, with 20 in the formative version in 1988, and we saw it done with as few as 9 or 10 in the so-called Corporate Rumble of 1999, 15 with 2004's televised Smackdown Royal Rumble, and of course as many as 40 in 2011, or 50 with the Greatest Royal Rumble. But often they have an expansive retinue of stars, and they are expansive in time frame as well. Some as short as 40 minutes, some as long as almost one and a half hours. This means that there are specific challenges that have to be met in creating a Royal Rumble match, in putting one together. Now, I have absolutely no idea how much of it is planned ahead and how much of it is improvised, how much of it comes from referees on the night at ringside being fed lines and instructions from guerrilla position. 
But what we can be certain of is that no matter how much planning or lack thereof goes into one of these kinds of matches, they must be extremely difficult to marry together. Athletes of different capabilities, different styles, different statures, all merging together in one fracker is often enough to intimidate even perhaps the most accomplished wrestling architects. No pun intended. The Iron Man helps offer up a sense of centricity to all of this, an anchor point around which everything else can orbit. Most importantly though, an Iron Man performance is often important because of offering up a sense of chronology. You look at Royal Rumbles like 2010 or 1991, and by the time you get to their conclusion, their final two or three, and indeed this is perhaps more pressing in 1990 as it is in 1991, you can certainly lack a sense of the kind of unique magic that comes with the Royal Rumble match. This is because by the time you get to the end, if there's no one there who's been there for a prolonged period of time, you get no sense of the uniqueness of a Royal Rumble's format present in its conclusion, being that this is an hour-long exercise in professional wrestling. By having an Ironman there, whether it's Rick Martel in 1991 having lasted 50 minutes and reaching the final five or six participants, or whether it's someone like Daniel Bryan with the Greatest Royal Rumble going from number one all the way past number 50 in an impressive 76-minute performance that it's hard to imagine will ever be topped, by having an Ironman present at the end you get a sense that everything that's happened up to that point still matters. Which isn't necessarily the case if you end up in a situation like that in 1989, for example, where the final two are entrant 27, Big John Studd, and entrant number 30, Ted DiBiase. You could almost be forgiven for imagining everything up to entrant 27, therefore, was completely irrelevant. Having an Iron Man performance involved helps alleviate some of these issues. Even if you don't consider them an issue, it certainly helps improve the general quality of the match, is my belief. I used to think that the Iron Man match the Iron Performance, I should say, was only something that came into prominence in later years of the Rumble's existence, sort of around the turn of the century. But as I grew to know Royal Rumbles better, and indeed at this point I know them better than I do almost anything else in wrestling, many of them better than the back of my own hand, in fact, I came to realise that in actual fact the Iron Man Performance has been an inherent genre trope of the Royal Rumble match since the very beginning. In 1988, Bret Hitman Hart enters first opposite Tito Santana and puts in an impressive 25-minute performance which sees him never stray from the thick of the action. I shan't go into too much detail about my admiration for that performance because you'll be able to read more of my thoughts on it in my current series on LordsOfPain.net where I look at the top 60 non-winning Royal Rumble individual performances of all time, so do please go check that out when you get an opportunity. It's become something of a passion project of mine and I've had a tremendous response to the first installment that got posted last Sunday. Nevertheless, it's worth saying that Bret Hart's performance in 1988 is deeply impressive when considered in the context of its time. It may pale in comparison to busier and more athletic performances in more recent years, even in more recent decades, but for 1988, where WrestleMania matches would often last between 5 and 6 minutes apiece, going 25 minutes in a 20-man battle royal, essentially almost managing to go wire to wire as well were it not for former Intercontinental Champion Don Morocco, is deeply impressive and certainly presented as a head-turning performance in the match itself. It seemed Bret Hart was destined for greatness even then. 
But what's important to understand is that the Iron Man performance was central to each of the first one, two, three, four, five Royal Rumble matches in its history. And in each of those five Royal Rumble matches, the next year always outdid the year before. You can see the evolution of the Iron Man match grow before your very eyes in the Rumble's formative years. Because in 1989, Mr. Perfect Kurt Hennig made his Royal Rumble match debut and outlasted Bret Hart by two minutes, or in Royal Rumble language, I guess we could call it a whole other entrance. He went for 27 minutes, only to be almost doubled the next year by one of the Royal Rumble match's still most impressive performances ever, Ted DiBiase, in 1990, who lasted 44 minutes, going from the number one entry and eventually being eliminated by the rampaging entrance of Hulk Hogan late into the match. He, in turn, was then unfathomably bested by Rick Martel in 1991, by any standard, a defining Iron Man performance if ever there was one, one that seemed to do everything Ric Flair's more famous record-breaking performance the next year did, perhaps only even better. Of course, Ric Flair did it for 60 minutes in 1992, almost going wire to wire completely and walking away with the World Championship, until Bob Backlund finally completed the evolution of the Iron Man performance by being the first man to go wire to wire in a Royal Rumble, breaking Ric Flair's longevity record by half an entrance, lasting 61 minutes, entering second and leaving as the penultimate man eliminated. So in actual fact, by the time you get to 1995 and Shawn Michaels is putting on a wire-to-wire performance and winning, despite the fact that WWE today promote this as one of the most quintessential moments in Rumble history, Shawn Michaels' performance in that match was nothing new. As a matter of fact, it was significantly less impressive than some of the non-winning Ironman performances that came before it. Because, of course, the 1995 Royal Rumble, for whatever reason, decided to shorten the space between entrants from 90 seconds or 120 seconds down to just 60 seconds. And while that plays in the favour of the match, which now watches as a sort of Mad Max Fury Road version of the Royal Rumble match, ultimately it does mean that Shawn Michaels' performance doesn't last anywhere near quite as long as those of Rick Martel, Ric Flair or Bob Backlund in the years preceding him. What is important about Shawn Michaels' performance in 1995, though, is that it was the first time you saw the Iron Man trope presented as the core story of the Royal Rumble match. Up to that point, it had been perhaps what would best be described as a subplot, let's say, using figurative terms. It was kind of an attraction, a part of the Royal Rumble match you could only see at the Royal Rumble match, but it wasn't really the point of what was going on. In 1995, even though Michaels wouldn't last quite as long as some of his forebearers, it nevertheless meant that for the first time, his Iron Man performance, and of course that of the British Bulldog, lest we forget, was placed at the very heart of the story of this multi-man piece. That's important to know, because of course it's a story that's been revisited in years since then, some of which have gone forgotten, and I dare say it'll be a story that'll be revisited in years to come. There's a strong chance it may even be revisited this year, as it seems WWE often get tempted by these superlative Iron Man performances when they have a quote-unquote workhorse uh, as a prime contender to win the Royal Rumble match, and it seems Seth Rollins is one of those this year. Ultimately, most Royal Rumble matches contain an Iron Man performance, and the trope increases in frequency over the years until it almost becomes unremarkable by its conclusion, no longer just the territory of the worker, but rather the territory of the Royal Rumble match itself. By the time you get to 2012, for example, which was a period in which I did believe that this was still something of a more modern conceit, the truth is that The Miz 
who wouldn't necessarily be the first person you would consider for a wire-to-wire performance in the Royal Rumble, channeling the spirit of someone like Bob Backlund and Shawn Michaels, nevertheless does it, and seemingly takes it in his stride in doing it as well. It is perhaps a testament to the conditioning and athleticism of more modern professional wrestling athletes that these have become so commonplace, so that by the time you get to 2009, the vast majority of the field itself is putting in performances anywhere near 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 minutes long, and all of them seemingly completely effortless at that. In fact, by 2009, the grandiose rhetoric surrounding a Royal Rumble Iron Man performance is completely absent. Rey Mysterio goes in as number one and lasts past the number 30 spot, but is free of the same kind of verbose language that surrounds that of Bob Backlund in 1993 and his underdog comeback story that year. It seems fitting, ultimately, that it's Daniel Bryan who breaks the record for the Iron Man performance at the so-called greatest Royal Rumble, because it's certainly true that his Iron Man performance that day was arguably the greatest we've seen. His chest ends up looking like minced beef because of all of the chops he's endured throughout. He's often not far away from the heart of the action, and the truth is that any man who can go into the ring and wrestle for 76 minutes straight is worthy of props, even in this superlative age where we get seemingly super heavyweights doing the kind of thing that was once strictly contained to cruiserweight divisions. Daniel Bryan's performance in the Great Straw Rumble as a nine-man, in fact, is a key example of how beneficial it can be. The 50-man version of the Royal Rumble that aired last April really wasn't up to all of that much. It didn't have any tangible stakes in the way the January Classic has since 1992, and it was filled with, well, frankly, filler entries. People like Baba Tunde, who had never even been on WWE television, not even NXT television, made a debut and were made a big deal of, but left the audience scratching their heads wondering why they were meant to really care all that much. By putting on an Iron Man performance at the heart of the match, and by putting on the longest enduring Iron Man performance at the heart of the match, Daniel Bryan was at least able to provide the match something worth revisiting for. It is a deeply, deeply impressive performance and speaks to his nature and effectiveness as an underdog story. That brings me really to the second of these five genre tropes, what I like to call the favourite. As Iron Man performances have become more and more frequent over the years in the Royal Rumble match, so arguably has this second trope become increasingly rarer. Long gone, it feels, are the days where the Royal Rumble match would be heavily predicated around a central character, a central personality who is clearly more of a favourite than anyone else in the field. As a matter of fact, the notion that the Royal Rumble match and its quality is predicated largely on the notion of an unpredictable winner, someone succeeding in the match who was unexpected in succeeding, is something of a myth. The fact is, as you go back over the pantheon of Royal Rumble matches across the years, more often than not, the eventual winner of the match in that given year was actually pretty obvious. And even if it wasn't, could have been guessed with someone who was paying attention to the product at the time. You think about how Hulk Hogan won with back-to-back victories in 1990-1991, arguably when he was at the very height of his powers as a mainstream World Wrestling Federation champion. It seemed unlikely that anybody else in those given fields, even the Ultimate Warrior, on the verge of superstardom himself, would walk away with the victory, considering how deeply entrenched Hulk Hogan was, not just in pop culture at that point, but also Pax WWE. 
You think about in 1996 and Shawn Michaels' victory there. Had you been paying attention to WWF television in the lead up to that event, knowing full well Shawn Michaels was going in and having an awareness of how professional wrestling tends to operate, even if it wasn't the kind of self-conscious awareness an IWC member has today, but just an attentiveness to the peaks and troughs, to the patterns that underpin professional wrestling, it would have been very difficult to enter the 1996 Royal Rumble imagining that anybody other than Shawn Michaels would walk away with the win, particularly considering Shawn Michaels' so-called underdog story that year as well as he sought to make a return from what we had been told was a pretty dire end of 1995. The same can even extend to Stone Cold Steve Austin who was such an eclipsing star at the height of his powers that in 1998 you'd have been foolish to bet against him, in 1999 you'd have been foolish to bet against him and arguably even in 2001 you would have been foolish to bet against him. It goes beyond even the Attitude Era though. Batista in 2005 may have shared joint favourite status with John Cena, but again, it would have been easy to guess he'd walk away with the win. Even as recently as last year in 2018, many people accurately predicted Shinsuke Nakamura walking away with the victory. And Shinsuke Nakamura was the only contemporary star other than the toxic reputation of Roman Reigns to have been predicted as a winner. Any predictions of Roman Reigns tended to be done from a cynical point of view, and the only surprise that came with Nakamura's victory was breaking a years-long pattern of outdated stars winning in outdated performances. So ultimately, the Royal Rumble match often has a favourite, and often that favourite will walk away with the honours at the end of the affair. In fact, as the fact remains that the Royal Rumble match uses the favourite as a key aspect to its storytelling. It is in fact inherent to the very nature of a Royal Rumble match's story that it has a favourite because that allows you to have a cornerstone story element around which you can ping other characters off of. This means that over the course of the Royal Rumble match's evolution, much like the Iron Man performance, the idea, the concept of the favourite has evolved, and we can really identify two versions of this concept. The first is what I like to call the underdog hero. There are various foundations to an underdog heroic performance at the heart of a Royal Rumble match. It might be something as simple as entering in as the first competitor. You think about Chris Benoit in 2004, who was essentially forced into the number one position by Machiavellian SmackDown general manager Paul Heyman to make sure that he had an underdog status heading into the year he, of course, went on to win. Alternatively, it could be something like an injury. You think about Shawn Michaels in 1996, as I just mentioned. His underdog story that year was largely defined as an underdog story because he was supposedly coming off of a storyline concussion dealt him by Owen Hart. Added to that, the fact that this was really the first time they made a massive go of someone winning two years in a row, really making that the point of Michaels' story night six as much as his underdog victory. And you get one of the more forced, I dare say even nauseating wins. Certainly it was predictable. A better example of the kind of injured underdog story is Bret Hart in 1994. Famously, he wrestled the Quebecers in a tag team championship match opposite his brother earlier that pay-per-view evening. And afterwards, Owen famously kicked his leg out from under his leg, as we say. Leading to questions as to whether Bret Hart would even make it into the Royal Rumble match later that night. When he does, and the camera pans in towards him, emerging from the entrance like a gunslinger walking his way through town in the Old West, only with a limping gait, 
You can't help but feel a swell of admiration and excitement for the character. Watch closely and you'll find that his performance adheres to that line tightly. There isn't a moment during his performance in that match that he isn't selling the knee, despite the fact you can often lose sight of him in the throng of humanity that often finds itself at the heart of that particular version of the match. These underdog performances, these underdog favourites, often play a much larger role in the season that the Royal Rumble match kicks off as well. For example, these underdog stories tend to leave, historically speaking, to more emotive WrestleMania story arcs. In the case of Bret Hart in 1994, it intermingled his chase to regain the WWF championship he lost under screwy circumstances at Survivor Series 1993 with his ongoing family issues with Owen Hart. It was a different kind of emotion come WrestleMania 10, but emotion was at the very heart of that story. Perhaps most tellingly, though, is Daniel Bryan in 2014 and 2015, which, oddly enough, even though neither one of them based themselves around the idea of an underdog story, nevertheless are affected massively by the idea of an underdog heroic story. And what I mean by that is that in 2014, it was Daniel Bryan's complete absence from the Royal Rumble match that saw the live crowd turn on it, and of course later the conflating circumstances surrounding CM Punk's departure of the company that collectively would fuel Daniel Bryan's rise and ascent to the main event of WrestleMania 30 and what many consider to be one of the most powerfully emotional story arcs in WWE's history. More interestingly is 2015, where the underdog story was denied Daniel Bryan again, only this time despite the fact he was in the match. Daniel Bryan is a natural underdog, and even though he entered the match without the underpinnings of an underdog story, there was nevertheless the sense of that kind of tone permeating his performance, and you could have easily seen that evolve thanks to his early entry number. Instead, he's eliminated early, in unremarkable circumstances, and in favour of Roman Reigns, another version of a predictable winner, but a predictable winner who puts on an alternative version of the favourite as a genre trope, an alternative version of a heroic performance at the heart of a Royal Rumble match, one that was significantly tone-deaf for the time and seemed to miss the point that fans were anchoring after something different. That alternative version of the favourite is what I like to call the action hero. This is a completely different kind of demonstration of a favourite being being at the heart of a Royal Rumble, and Roman Reigns in 2015 is a great example because of how tonally misguided it was. It better demonstrates the action hero version of the favourite as a trope. He gets a late number that's favourable to cardiovascular conditioning. He puts on a relatively content-heavy dominating performance, often coming off when he's at the the, the centre of the story as a fighting hero, even when being beaten down by Big Show and Kane. And he gets a victory that feels inevitable. These three conceits are often at the heart of an action hero story. That is, the late number, the dominating physical performance, and a victory that feels inevitable. You think about, for example, Lex Luger in 1994, co-winner with Bret Hart, and you get another great exhibition of the trope there. But perhaps most interestingly, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin who has most successfully utilised the action hero as a genre trope. Austin's efforts in 2001 and 1999 in particular are a curious marriage of both versions of the favourite trope. He marries up the idea of an underdog with the idea of an action hero, and often he does so very effectively. Consider in 1999, 
He's an underdog in the sense that he enters first, he gets an early number, and he's an underdog in the sense of the wider context of his arc against Mr. McMahon at the time. He has the odds deliberately stacked against him. WWE would try to some degree revisit that notion with Roman Reigns in 2016, having failed with their tone-deaf production in 2015. Again, it didn't quite work. But to return to 1999, despite the fact that he has the underpinnings of an underdog story, what's fascinating is that Austin's performance then evolves into something far more of an action hero style. He returns after having been taken out early to the match after a late number late into the fourth quarter of the effort, and he does so without really bearing many of the scars of the beatdown that had happened in the toilets at the start of the night. To invert that key sense of inevitability in his victory, however, is the real stroke of genius with Austin's performance in 1999. His victory very much felt inevitable at the time. I remember feeling that way myself as a young fan. So to tilt that on its head, rather than just being some kind of attitude-era stunt, which sports entertainment would tell us it is. In actual fact, it's a magnificent manipulation of genre expectations. Thanks to this curious marriage of a performance from Austin that brings together the two marked versions of the favourite as an idea at the heart of a Royal Rumble match. As a matter of fact, it even marks something of a conceptual influence of the more experimental early years of the Royal Rumble match, like the aforementioned 1994 version, where the two ideas of a favourite, the underdog in Bret Hart and the action hero in Lex Luger, intertwine. Again, in 1994, there was something of a marriage there. What's fascinating about 1999 is it takes it from two people to one, and it should be admired for that. But sticking with the idea of Austin in particular, you fast forward a couple of years to his 2001 victory. And it has, again, the sense of both underdog and action hero. This time, he gets the late number of an action hero performance, but he gets beaten down in the entranceway by Triple H, busted open widely, and has to crawl his way back to the ring. That kind of physical handicap, that physical disadvantage, really kind of marks him and gives him a vibe of an underdog, despite the fact that he got this favourable late entry, combined, of course, with the blade job. But again, the performance itself is very much the action hero in design. He explodes back into life when Rikishi attempts to pounce on him in the aisleway, and indeed he blazes his way through the rest of the Royal Rumble match, getting the better of men who even entered after him, and ultimately, of course, going on to win against a monster like Kane. And arguably, Kane at his most Kane-like. The action hero version of the favourite, however, is often less emotively effective. WrestleMania arcs that have come off of the back of an action hero victory tend to be less memorable, and certainly considered to be among some of the weaker narratives. Triple H in 2002, for example. Hulk Hogan in his back-to-back victories. Batista in 2005 is often seen as a great WrestleMania arc, and there is still a lot of love for 2005 as a Royal Rumble match, but for me his victory feels particularly tepid that, that year. Even the best modern example of John Cena in 2013 led to a certain backlash. He came in, fought and won like an action hero in that Royal Rumble match, and people didn't like him for it. There was no reason to emotively connect with the character, particularly at that seemingly late stage in the prime of his career. In fact, that's the third trope of the Royal Rumble match that I wanted to concentrate on. Past meets present. I just mentioned there that in 2013... John Cena felt like a man out of his time, felt unwelcome in his action hero victory of the Royal Rumble match, 
And that was very much true. I can, while somewhat disagreeing with the notion that it was indicative of a terrible match, nonetheless empathise with the notion that it was a poor choice of winner. You watch that match back now, and it feels very much like it should have been Dolph Ziggler's year, thanks to his incredibly accomplished performance. Interestingly enough, something of an underdog Ironman performance. Instead, past meets present often has a toxic influence on Royal Rumble matches and isn't limited to the recent spate of oddly timed victors. Instead, it tends to take the notion of novelty entrance, takes, tends to take the guise of novelty entrance, I should say. These novelty entrants have become quite common practice, nostalgia most of all. 2012 is, of course, the worst offender with a field that is made up almost entirely of novelty or nostalgic entrance, and admittedly is somewhat offset by an incredible legend-killer-like performance from Cody Rhodes. But nonetheless, that is the trope as it is seen at its most problematic. Between 2013 and 2017, it only got worse still, and could yet remain in that sphere of influence if Shinsuke Nakamura's victory last year turns out to be a one-off and not the beginning of a new trend. Now, the belief has always been that past meets present, novelty entrance, nostalgia entrance, have been a long-term aspect of the Royal Rumble match. But this is not the case. In fact, earlier examples of the Royal Rumble match use the concept radically differently. It's present but presented in an alternative fashion, far more serious, far more in keeping with the in-universe concept behind a Royal Rumble match, which is ultimately a number one contenders contest. You think about in 1993 when Bob Backlund emerges. He's far from a contemporary talent at the time, and in fact, his best days were arguably already behind him, despite the impressive performance he puts on that year. But his entrance into that Royal Rumble isn't treated as a novelty, it isn't treated as a shot of nostalgia. In fact, it's treated as a core story element of that year's Royal Rumble match. It's a comeback story. A comeback story at 43, of course, which these days is really when contemporary talents start winning their first world titles, it feels like. But a comeback story nonetheless. And interestingly enough, a comeback story that, though fans don't really care about him by the beginning of the match, certainly care about him when he gets eliminated if the, if the wave of boos that meets Yokozuna's actions are anything to go by. And again, that is generated not by an action hero performance, as it is by an underdog hero performance. We're seeing something of a trend there. Fast forward a couple of years, in 1995, you get a novelty entrant in the form of Dick Murdoch. No doubt relied upon because of the lack of roster depth at the time, it again is nevertheless not played for any laughs. This isn't a nostalgia pop, this isn't a novelty pop. Dick Murdoch enters the ring and puts in a relatively eye-catching performance himself, taking some of the most contemporary stars at the time to their limits, before being eliminated, I think, probably among the final five or six competitors that evening. Instead, the transformation that sees past meets present, that sees these novelty entrants and nostalgia entrants become something more of a, a cheap pop, really that transformation begins at the turn of the century. I mentioned Bob Backlund in 1993. He turns back up once again seven years later in the year 2000, but this time it isn't an emotively punching underdog comeback story we're expected to buy into. Instead, there's an undercurrent of contemptuous humour to the very notion that he would even have entered the match at that late stage in his life. He's still in pretty good shape for his age, and it's pretty clear immediately that he can still go in the ring, at least to some degree. Perhaps not quite to the impressive degree in 1993, but we've seen far worse. 
Nonetheless, it's presented in a way we're not supposed to take it seriously. It's angled in a manner that says you should sneer and laugh at this, not accept it as a serious part of the match. Of course, a year later, the honky-tonk man would be deployed in what is a very overtly a comic passage in the Royal Rumble match, designed perhaps to boost Kane's number of eliminations that year. His is an nostalgia pop, yes, but it's also a humour pop, as he sings his entrance theme in the middle of the match, because why wouldn't someone do that, before Kane nails him with the guitar he's failed to put to one side. This hasn't been a universal trend. There have been returns of veteran stars in more recent years after the turn of the century, like Mr. Perfect in 2002 and Mick Foley in 2004, that were treated either for a specific purpose, but were ultimately presented far more seriously in tone. However, by 2008, this is a particular trope that had cemented itself as one of the Royal Rumble match's most toxic habits. In 2008, of course, you got the cameo appearance of a Jimmy Snooker that looked like he had absolutely no business being in a wrestling ring, and of course, Rowdy Roddy Piper, who looked very much the same. While many have admired this passage in the 2008 Royal Rumble match, even daring to posit it as one of the match's best moments, the fact is that it is completely out of keeping with the in-universe justification of someone entering a Royal Rumble match, which again is ultimately a number one contenders match, and is also completely disruptive to the narrative of the wider story. The entire action surrounding these two men stops as everyone decides that apparently a WrestleMania main event world title match is not quite as important as seeing Jimmy Snooker and Roddy Piper pretend to recapture the glory of their youth, something that they categorically fail to do so, instead serving only to embarrass themselves in front of a packed-out Madison Square Garden in a testament that will remain for the rest of time on the WWE Network. I of course do not mean to speak ill of the recently passed, but it is nonetheless a horrible moment in the Royal Rumble match's history, at least in my opinion. Then, of course, after years of mistaken philosophy underpinning the product, this last decade has seen this particular trope get even worse still. Not only does it have the tendency to disrupt the narrative of the Royal Rumble match specifically, it has gone on to disrupt the narrative of the entire company historically. In 2013, John Cena wins when he shouldn't. In 2014, Batista wins when he shouldn't. In 2016, Triple H wins when he shouldn't. In 2017, Randy Orton wins when he shouldn't. On and on the list goes, and there's a danger that this trend hasn't gone away yet either. John Cena has announced his entry into this year's Royal Rumble match already, and I live in fear of the day WWE decide that he should tie Austin's record for most Royal Rumble matches before going on to break Ric Flair's record for most world titles at WrestleMania. Time can only tell on that front, but it's certainly true that past meets present has come very much ironically like the Iron Man trope has to become the very centre of the Royal Rumble match's story, this time in a rather meta fashion, because fictionally little is made of it, but factually this has dominated discourse about the Royal Rumble match for far too long. The silver lining is, of course, that the 2018 Royal Rumble match took that notion and did apply it to the fiction. It took a very self-aware approach, as it decided to adopt the predominant conversation surrounding the Royal Rumble matches of years that had preceded it, that being of winners who had no right winning, and decided to instead use it to build a story. Not only was this consciously played off of in the final passage of the match itself, as three contemporary stars lined up to take on three all-time veterans, but at the same time, it was inflected in moments, small character-driven moments, throughout the entire match. 
Watch as John Cena enters and mirrors his entrance in 2013. There's a clear symmetry there as the competitors in the ring line up, the contemporary competitors in the ring line up to take him out upon his entrance. But whereas in 2013 they pounce on Cena, push him down to the mat and Cena explodes out, getting swift eliminations and dominating the ring immediately, in 2018 it is a pure and simple beatdown. A clear indication then as the Royal Rumble match seems to almost consciously revisit a moment in one of its earlier iterations and flips the script on its head to say and indicate that this time maybe WWE really has moved on. If 2018 was comfortable to put this trope at the heart of its story, it's going to be very interesting in 2019 to see whether that pattern recurs or whether this time the contemporary stars will truly be front and centre, not just of part of the story, not just on the winning end of the narrative, but occupying the entire narrative itself, or at least the vast majority. I mentioned there, of course, people teaming up to take on John Cena to basically nullify one of the biggest threats fictionally of the match last year. And that is indicative of the fourth trope that I wanted to cover on the show today, which is a fairly self-explanatory one, one that may even seem a little bit obvious in its conclusion, and that is the concept of every man for himself. 2018 was a welcome reprieve because the Royal Rumble match, at its heart, remains a number one contenders match. I've already mentioned this several times already on the show. Not only did 2018 decide to base a narrative upon the idea of the contemporary stars getting very much the better of stars of the past, of the present beating out the past in very conscious fashion, it also completely avoided, for the most part, the idea of novelty. There were maybe one or two little nods of the head towards it, but they certainly didn't come to dominate the narrative. Because novelty disrupts the reality of a Royal Rumble match, the reality of it being a number one contenders match in a very jarring and distracting way. This wasn't always the case, though. Even had novelty entrants been as prominent as they are today back in 1988 or 1989, the likelihood is they wouldn't have disrupted the narrative quite as much. And that's because until 1992's coming-of-age Royal Rumble match that saw for the first time the winner gain something more than just the bragging rights of being able to say they'd won a 30-man town battle royal, it was mostly a conceptual impactless affair was the Royal Rumble match. Winning it didn't really seem to achieve much for the star because winning it was a right reserved for the company's biggest stars. So it was a curious state of affairs for its first few years. It was the addition of that extra stipulation in 1992 of putting the world championship on the line and thereafter the opportunity to wrestle the world champion in the main event of WrestleMania, arguably the biggest match on WWE's calendar. It was the addition of those stakes that really helped cement the idea that every man for himself was a trope at the heart of the Royal Rumble match that genuinely mattered, and wasn't just a tagline to try and help sell the idea. Fascinatingly, if you watch those earlier Royal Rumble matches, and it's particularly prominent in 1988, what you find is that people are very quick to team up. The heel-babyface line that defined sports entertainment back then is adhered to very strictly, particularly in the first one, two, maybe even three versions of the Royal Rumble match, and you get these temporary, temporary alliances form. Those alliances can still happen today, but they happen with much less frequency and much less immediacy 
I add, than they did in those initial versions of the Royal Rumble match. And a large portion of that, I would imagine, stems from that underlying psychological bent that the Royal Rumble match is now built upon. That it should be every man for himself, and that there is a reason for it to be every man for himself, because every man wants the prize to be his own. Naturally, for that to work, the prize has to be there, and thanks to 1992 and its success, it has been for the vast majority of the Royal Rumble match's life cycle. Of course, the Royal Rumble match absolutely should be every man for himself, because think about how often that's come to inform important parts of any given Royal Rumble match narrative. Think about how many times betrayal has come to play a powerful part in those small, characterful moments that can often make help, the Royal, help make the Royal Rumble match into such a colourful affair. Everything from Hulk Hogan throwing out Randy Savage in the ensuing showdown between the two mega powers ahead of their WrestleMania 5 confrontation is a vitally important moment, all the way through to something as seemingly incidental as The Undertaker betraying and misleading his brother Kane in the conclusion to 2003's affair in a moment that didn't really lead anywhere, but played heavily on the past between the two brothers of destruction and The Undertaker's want to regain the Undisputed Championship. Of course, or rather WWE Championship, I should say at the time. And of course... That is helped along even further by the subtext of the fact that the man Brock Undertaker then comes face to face with is his long-time, recently removed rival, Brock Lesnar. You could take that as well all the way through to just this last year's version of the event, where Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins double-team to eliminate The Miz, only for Roman Reigns to then get the better of Seth Rollins. A beautiful moment with dense character inflection because of the established history of The Shield and the history between those two men particularly ironic in the way that it then bounces off and mirrors the earlier performance of The Shield in the 2014 Royal Rumble match, in which it's Dean Ambrose who tries to eliminate Roman Reigns to his elimination, only to find that Seth Rollins is the man playing Peacekeeper. It seems history really is cyclical even in the fiction of WWE. These betrayals have been a frequent occurrence in Royal Rumble match history, and often are important in either furthering, sometimes even setting off, uh, a prominent WrestleMania match. Of course, the idea of the Mega Powers is perhaps still the most powerful, long-lasting, and pertinent of those examples. But also, think on how integral the idea that every man for himself, the concept, has played in the idea of a stable teaming up, and specifically the idea that a stable teaming up is an indication of villainy. If the idea of every man for himself wasn't there, and if the idea of every man for himself wasn't in turn supported by the prize being up for grabs at the end of the Royal Rumble match, then the truth is, a stable teaming up would really only seem logical, rather than it would unfair. And then think about how many times the stable teaming up has proved to be one of the most, if not the most, compelling part of a Royal Rumble match. And how much potential fun and compelling intrigue of feuds there's been underlacing it. 2011, for example, saw CM Punk coast his way through the first half hour of the match, first 40 minutes of the match even, as his new Nexus stable begins to build and build and build. It really defines the first portion of 2011's narrative as it seems to knock on the door of the reality era and usher in a new age, and CM Punk is at the very heart of that. But his villainy, his 
ungracious, his ingratiating performance that year wouldn't have been half as effective if it wasn't for the fact that the apparent coming together of the new Nexus was so at odds with the spirit of the Royal Rumble match. And in turn, even if it was at odds with the spirit of the Royal Rumble match, think about how much more effective that becomes when you know that there is a tangible prize at the end of it, that CM Punk is not just going to unfairly win a match, but that he's going to very much benefit at the expense of every other performer in the match as well because of this method. None of that is possible without the notion of every man for himself being supported, being underpinned and being at the very heart of a Royal Rumble concept. One of my favourite Royal Rumble performances, and cover your ears if you don't want any spoilers here for my top 60 non-winning Royal Rumble performances, is Legacy in 2009, Cody Rose and Ted DiBiase, who constantly act as a single unit throughout their entire time together within that match from the moment that Cody Rhodes turns up. And again, that wouldn't feel anywhere quite as villainous, anywhere quite as lovably hateable as it does if the notion of every man for himself, if that key genre trope wasn't in place, wasn't enforced, wasn't underlined by the tangible prize at the end of the match. One of my most favourite versions of this trope, however, comes in 1998 uh, as a team that's barely talked about anymore decides to flip the script. The nation of domination, as JR says, could prove to be the team to beat in 1998 because of the sheer weight of numbers operating in their favour. It is a team that, in the field of 30, boasts Farouk, the intercontinental champion, The Rock, Rocky Mayavir, D'Lo Brown, the super heavyweight Mark Henry, and the not-to-be-messed-with Karma Mustafa. And yet, multiple times throughout the entire match, the Nation of Domination are often found fighting each other. Farouk immediately hits each and every single member of the Nation upon making his entrance. Rocky Maivir and D'Lo Brown have one of the most interesting moments in the match when they immediately erupt into a fist fight after double-teaming someone. Farouk eliminates not one, but two members of the nation, and The Rock eliminates Farouk in turn during the final four. It's a fascinating way to demonstrate the notion of every man for himself, by having a team that would benefit greatly by uniting, as the new Nexus do in 2011, but instead utilising it to both create intrigue for the match and for future feuds, but to also further character, lest we forget, of course, at the beginning of 1998, tensions were already mounting between Farouk and The Rock over leadership of the nation, and that would all explode after WrestleMania itself. Ultimately, without the central everyman-for-himself conceit, all of these ideas are considerably less effective, essentially rendered totally inert, and without 1992, they are at least considerably less motivated within the internal logic of the fiction. Why would Demolition, for example, fight each other in 1989 upon entering as entrance 1 and 2 when they could just stand by and wait for the other members of the match to come down one by one, double-teaming them one at a time? Without the tangible stakes on the line, with just bragging rights, with just the right to say, I won the Royal Rumble match, it seems somehow less convincing. That it wasn't an issue at the time speaks to the way the culture of professional wrestling has changed over the years, but it's important that we grasp this idea for the sake of understanding how the Royal Rumble match has evolved. In fact, demolition are indicative of another benefit of the everyman-for-himself idea, which is being part of one of many charming tag-team efforts we've seen throughout Royal Rumble matches over the years. In 1990, demolition have a protracted exchange with the colossal connection, Andre the Giant and Haku, and this eventuates in Demolition double-teaming Andre to eliminate him. 
this is indicative of roster positioning. One of the concepts I love is that the idea of a tag team, a world's best tag team united together, both men available at any one time, is equivalent to one of the top single stars in the company. In other words, Demolition alone, any either Axe, Smash, even Crush against Andre the Giant would stand no chance. But together, as a team, Demolition equate to Andre the Giant. And you see this demonstrated in the Royal Rumble match of 1990 as together they help eliminate Andre. It's then repeated the very following year in something of a spiritual sequel as you see the same idea when the Legion of Doom double team and eventually eliminate the single presence of The Undertaker. Another charming example of a tag team performance comes from Team Angle, later the world's greatest tag team, who not only put together a great collaborative effort in 2003, but then repeat the task on SmackDown's 2004 televised Royal Rumble of 15 men the next year. They don't have quite the same big moment where together they eliminate a major competitor, but they're charming efforts nonetheless. And part of that charm stems from the fact that it's kind of a bit illegal, that it's against the spirit of the match, but there's something crafty and kind of charismatic about the idea of getting away with it. And then there are the impromptu team-ups. Like Bray Wyatt and Rusev in 2015, for example, who, had WWE had a bit more sense that year, would have taken on the role that Big Show and Kane had at the end of the match, dominating the remaining field and eliminating people one by one, as they did very early on in the effort when Rusev made his entry following an initial confrontation with the so-called Eater of Worlds. You've seen this time and time again in small moments throughout Royal Rumble matches, and in each instance, they always help propel the narrative to doing something a little bit more imaginative than having 20, 30 guys standing around brawling with one another. The same, of course, can be said for the multiple versions we have of Leviathan figures being eliminated by sudden rushes of collective competitors. Rikishi in 2000, for example, is eliminated by six men, and Viscera, or King Mabel, or Big Vis, or Big Daddy V, or any one of his multiple aliases, has had this happen to him on multiple occasions. The whole multiple men eliminate the major threat is a common recurrence in Royal Rumble matches, a charming little nod to what a classical Royal Rumble match might look like. You kind of shrug your shoulders, you know it's inevitable, but it never stops putting a smile on your face, because it's one of those small wrestling moments that just kind of makes sense. Ultimately, as I said, it's Legacy in 2009 that provide my favourite version of how to manipulate the everyman-for-himself trope of a Royal Rumble match because of the manner in which they team up throughout. And that manner really comes into its own during the final passage. This is what I like to think of as the fifth of the five core Royal Rumble match tropes that help define the genre. The final passage might be when it comes down to two, three, four, six, even as many as seven individuals in the ring in the case of 2013, but a moment that carries a definite sense of finality following a clean break from the rest of the action. Whether that's a simple pause or an event elimination that marks a transition into the final moments of the match itself, the final passage is often key to ending the Royal Rumble match on a high. And ending the Royal Rumble match on a high is often key to making sure any given Royal Rumble match goes down as a favourite. Indeed, often it is these closing moments that are among the Royal Rumble match's best moments, best passages of 10, 5, even 15 minutes throughout its entire history. 
It's often the most exhilarating paced exchange of action, often preceded as well with a corner standoff of some sort. So too are they the most characterful moments of the match, as you see talents realise, characters realise, the complexion of their final goal that's finally in sight has changed because of the people they're left in the ring with. It's getting down to the nitty-gritty here is a line that always sticks in my mind, though I can't quite remember which of the Royal Rumble matches offers it up, because there is that sense that only the best are able to survive until the very end, and often roster positioning can become a core element to making sure that the final passage of a Royal Rumble match is able to be its most effective. The stare-down is perhaps one of the most important elements of the final passage, though. That moment where the final few competitors look around the ring and realise the situation they're now in. Because without that, sometimes Royal Rumbles can feel jilted in their conclusion. It can feel a little odd to get to the end of a Royal Rumble match without at least a pause for thought that we are, in fact, at the end. You think about 1989 with the last exchange between Ted DiBiase and Bing Judd Studd. DiBiase has the charisma and the underlying character subtext. The idea being that he had bought the number 30 entrant to pull off a wonderful little finish anyway, but it doesn't carry anywhere near the kind of sense of drama that some of the Royal Rumbles with a more pronounced final passage are able to capture. The same can be said for that of 1991 that sees Hulk Hogan suffer a protracted beatdown from one of the Nasty Boys and, of course, Earthquake as well. Despite the fact that the British Bulldog has an amazing performance that year and goes lunging into the two remaining heels at the end of the match as part of the final four aside, the fact remains that that old routine somehow feels anticlimactic considering the special match in which Hogan was ending as the victor. But perhaps it is 2010 that I go to as the worst version of a Royal Rumble match for not having a final passage, or perhaps to phrase it a little more eloquently, for suffering the most for not having that stare down before the final passage. Its final moments are definitely pronounced, thanks to the so-called surprise return of Edge that many had predicted ahead of time. But the fact that that doesn't come as the number 30 entrant means that there's a very odd pacing to the final moments of the match. Batista instead emerges as number 30, and when he comes down to the ring, there's barely anybody left in it. How can you effectively wind up to the winding down if you've already wound down before you can ever wind up to it. In other words, if there's only four or five guys left in the ring by the time the 30th entrant comes out, it's very difficult to capture an exhilarating sense of pace as you move into the final moments of the match. It's difficult to capture that sense of urgency, and this is something that 2002 suffers from as well, with its own oddly paced last five entrants. Nonetheless, to return to 2010, there's no denying that by the time Shawn Michaels is gone, it's even stranger. Edge doesn't look like he's fit to be back in the ring at that early stage after his injury, and John Cena and Batista have something of a rather tepid showdown themselves. The final conclusion to the match that sees Edge stalking John Cena for a spear from behind is nothing short of disappointing. Had there been a stare down, had they built up to a final confrontation between the likes of John Cena, Batista, Edge and a very motivated, highly desperate Shawn Michaels, 2010 may have ended on a far more exciting note and have a better legacy for it. Alternatively, you compare that with Royal Rumble matches that do have that stare down before the final four entrance and the difference is stark. Even as early as 1988, this genre trope was already in play, as there's a momentary pause during that final three showdown as the outnumbered hacksaw Jim Duggan, the eventual victor, realises the desperate situation he finds himself in before launching forward like the action hero role he plays that year. 
1994 is an especially effective example. Though Bret Hart is the biggest star left in the ring at the time, with Shawn Michaels still very much being a, a defined mid-carder at the time, uh, and Lex Luger, whose star power hadn't really taken off, joined them, Fatu's presence may come off as rather anomalous, historically speaking. But it works in the context of the match, precisely because there is a momentary stare-down before the final four erupts. It's a protracted final four as well, where the four competitors give one another space and room to pair off and perform moves and exchanges and even small set pieces that you wouldn't normally find in in the midst of a Royal Rumble match at least. 1999's Final 2 is a unique version of a stare-down before the final passage because Austin comes back, eliminates Big Boss Man, and the stare-down is between him and Mr. McMahon on the outside of the ring, as Austin instead seeks to bring Mr. McMahon inside the ropes rather than throw him out. 2009's Last 6 is a particular favourite thanks to its heavy inflections of character subtext that see the legacy equate to The Undertaker as a team of three hyenas seek to seemingly pounce on the King of the Jungle. And while Triple H's own barbarian nature, his barbarity, his cerebral assassin character and his experience as a ring general seem to be presented as equitable to the big show's size and power. 2016 contains an exhilarating final passage of its own that starts with Triple H's entrance at number 30. While the showdown between him and Roman Reigns is awkwardly choreographed and terribly self-conscious, it nonetheless moves into a very exciting final passage that plays on different character intonations, different character subtext, and different character combinations between largely contemporary talents that proves to be incredibly exciting even now, despite the bittersweet taste the ending may leave in your mouth. Ultimately, the final passage, as I mentioned earlier, is helped largely by effective roster positioning, without which it can be difficult to present a final four or six participants in an exciting manner. The reason it works so well in 2009 is because as you come down to the big show, Triple H, The Undertaker and Legacy, you've gotten there by having seen the the field whittle down bit by bit, on the one hand fictionally according to their ability, and on the other hand factually according to their star power. In other words, the bigger stars last longer. The smaller the star, the earlier they go out. It proves to be a very effective method that means that by the time you get to the final six, there's a real sense of occasion. There's a real sense of seeing six major stars clash with one another in the ring. And 1992 is perhaps the first Royal Rumble to effectively deploy this. You see as the likes of Roddy Piper, Randy Savage and others are thrown out one by one until you are left with the arguably biggest stars of the match in Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan and Sid Justice. That kind of whittling down was toyed with in 2008 to a slightly lesser extent, but ultimately it tends to work even when it's only flirted with. You can't achieve it, however, without that clear sense of roster positioning, and that might be one reason why the conclusions to more recent Royal Rumble matches, combined, of course, with the ill-advised winners, have felt perhaps not quite on the same part as some of the most memorable examples of this particular trope. Hopefully, as 2019 progresses, and as this apparent cultural shift in WWE hopefully gathers steam, finds its footing and becomes a permanent measure rather than a momentary panic, we might be able to return to the years where you're able to whittle down according to star power and get a clear sense of that roster positioning in the conclusion to your Royal Rumble match, because I do think that it's very important and very effective. The subtext also in these situations offers up excellent endings, as do the character inflections that come with it. Final passages tell us a great deal about the people involved, and they do it often. 
You know exactly who Stone Cold Steve Austin is when he decides during the final passage in 1997 to enter back into the ring and eliminate the other three competitors still left. You know exactly who The Rock is when it comes down to him and Stone Cold Steve Austin in the final moments of the 1998 Royal Rumble match after The Rock had put on an impressive athletic Ironman performance from the number four entry. You know exactly who Triple H is in 2006, when not only does he go wire to wire, but reprises his elimination violently against Rey Mysterio in poor sportsmanship. You know exactly who Ted DiBiase is in 1989's final passage, when he's bought the number 30 entrant and tries to use Akeem as his hired hitman to take out Big John Studd, before trying to bribe Big John Studd himself and rely on Virgil for interference to save his soul. Perhaps most brilliantly of all is 2007's final passage, not between Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker, but between Rated RKO and The Legends. You know exactly who Edge and Randy Orton are at that point in time as you see Rated RKO completely dissolve before your very eyes. A notion that not only plays heavily on their character, but also, interestingly enough, is only possible because of the central trope of being every man for himself and the idea that there is a tangible real prize on the line in combination these these methods these ideas they help establish immediately who rated rko is if you had never watched a, a moment of professional wrestling you could watch the final passages of any of these aforementioned examples and know exactly what those characters are all about because that is the beauty of the final passage of a genre trope okay well that about wraps me up We've gone through the top five tropes that I believe are inherent to a good Royal Rumble match. And next week I am toying, though I'm not guaranteed to do it, with the idea of a watch-along. Where I will sit down and put on a Royal Rumble match I know well, and I'm undecided as to which one it will be. And talk through it and see, allow you guys to see it through my eyes as we perhaps watch along with the match itself on the WWE Network. Whether I do that or not remains to be seen. I may have to do a practice run to see if it's a concept that works. But if not, I will still be back next week with more great content here on Sports Entertainment is Dead. I'd love to know what you think about the things that I've gone through today, whether you agree with my ideas or disagree with them, and whether you think there are any key genre tropes that I've missed out. The truth is that the Royal Rumble match is loaded with tropes. There are more than you can shake a stick at, and frankly, if I were to do them all, we'd be here for two, three, maybe even four hours. The truth is, as well though, that I believe the five I've gone over today are the most important of the bunch, that the Royal Rumble match itself wouldn't be what it is today without them. Having said that, the beauty of understanding wrestling as performance art genre rather than sports entertainment stipulation means that if a Royal Rumble match ever does come that decides to subvert or undercut one or more of these current tropes that I've discussed today, then I will be able to admire it for being a, a genre-redefining effort rather than something that doesn't marry up to expectation. That's the kind of malleable nature that watching professional wrestling as performance art achieves, and that's why I believe still that sports entertainment is dead. If you do have any thoughts on anything I've discussed, though, if you want to disagree or agree with me, or if you want to suggest other tropes, the easiest way to do so is to get in contact with me on Twitter, at LOPplan. You can also hit me up on Facebook, just look for Samuel Plan. I'm available on email, samuel.plan. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Samuel.plan101 at gmail.com. You can also drop a comment on any of my posts on lordsofpain.net or best of all, sign up to our forums, LOP forums, which you can get to through the front page at lordsofpain.net. Sign up, let me know if you do so I can make sure your account gets activated in due course and you can join in on the discussion with one of the greatest wrestling communities in the IWC today. 
In the meantime, make sure you check out all the great shows here on Lords of Pain Radio, including this Friday's episode of The Right Side of the Pond, where I will be back on, hopefully with Maverick, Maverick and Mazza both. And until then, I will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Have a good one, guys. <laughs>